Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So we are in a second part of a three-part sermon on this specific passage as we've been working through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that we pray for a greater measure of the fullness of your Spirit upon us as your church, upon us as your saints. And Lord, through your Spirit, would you take these words of the Scriptures and even my own words, which are nothing in and of themselves apart from your Spirit, that you would take the words, the things that we hear and see and learn from this passage and plant them deeply into our own hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Associated Press about a week and a half ago, I believe, came out with an article about this, this drug that's becoming increasingly popular in the U.S., coming from Brazil, called the Ayahuacus drug. I think that's how you pronounce it, anyway. But growing popular in the U.S., but the article, interestingly, talked about the drug and becoming much more popular in used, being, uh, excuse me, being used in religious services. And even that's becoming much more popular in the United States, and in the article, it talks about how one person in this religious context using this drug and what his experience has been like. And he describes it as having experienced sobbing, howling, laughing, crawling on all fours. And some within a religious context using the drug, this hallucinogenic, reported seeing dead loved ones, seeing visions of the devil, seeing visions of angelic beings, 
And when individuals were asked, well, why are you attending these religious services and using this hallucinogenic in this religious service? And people gave different answers. Some say they're looking for some kind of healing for their mental disorders. Some are looking for a way to cope with trauma. And some are looking to experience something supernatural all in the context of a religious service. The Church of Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ certainly has much to say with regards to many of these things and has much help to lend to those struggling with these different things. But the Church of Christ has something much greater, more effective, and certainly safer than a hallucinogenic drug, and that is the Spirit of the Living God. And it's the Spirit of the Living God that makes the Church a supernatural church, which means then when God's people come together on a Sunday morning to worship the living God, that this isn't something ordinary, but actually this is something beyond ordinary, that this is something supernatural. And so, as we consider the passage this morning, I want to make the case that the church of the living God is a Pentecostal church. And I want to give you sort of four characteristics that makes a Pentecostal church, and then concluding with one last point, which is the supernatural church today. So firstly, what makes a Pentecostal church? First, it is a church that is filled with the Spirit. Now, before some of you get a little too nervous about what I mean when I say that the church is to be a Pentecostal church, let me clarify or define our terms. Many of you are familiar with Pentecostalism, or are familiar with a Pentecostal church, or some of you perhaps have been a part of a Pentecostal church. In Pentecostalism, and most often than not, in most cases, the idea in, a Pente in Pentecostalism is this sort of this second indwelling of the Spirit of God that results in speaking in tongues. And so in other words, in Pentecostalism, it's believed that the person that it should be pursuing a second indwelling of the Spirit. So you are indwelled by the Spirit when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then part of what makes the Christian life is when you receive the second indwelling or a baptism of the Spirit that results in speaking in tongues, and that is a short evidence that the person is saved. Right. So that's not what I mean when I say that the church should be a Pentecostal church. That is not what we believe. That is not what we teach here in the Scriptures. In fact, as you read throughout the book of Acts, you see that there are many examples of people coming to believe in the gospel and not speaking in tongues. So one does not need to speak in tongues or in a language that they are not familiar with in order to be saved. The other sort of characteristic of Pentecostalism is that experience trumps Scripture. So in other words, it is experience that interprets Scripture when it should be the other way around. That is what we believe. That is the script, that's what the Scriptures teach. Scripture ex interprets our experience. Scripture grounds our experiences. And it's never the other way around. So that's certainly not what I mean when I say that the church is to be a Pentecostal church where experience interprets Scripture. So then what do I mean that the church is to be a Pentecostal church well, what we read here in the book of Acts, what happens is that on the day of Pentecost, as the believers, we believe around 120 of them were meeting together, and then something supernatural happens, and that is the Spirit of God comes upon and indwells the believers. And so 
do we see or we read here a supernatural event? And that is what I mean about a Pentecostal church, that the church is to be a supernatural church because the church is filled by the Spirit of the living God. It is a supernatural phenomenon planned by God, commenced by the risen Christ who has ascended unto heaven and activated by the Spirit of the living God. I mean, the very definition of something supernatural is a manifestation or an event beyond scientific understanding or the law of nature. And that's what, exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Then resulting in these believers speaking in a language that they never knew before. And you have here in Jerusalem during Pentecost, Jews from every nation who also speak very different, many different languages, and they're hearing all these believers speaking in, a, in their own language, and they're perplexed and they're surprised because there's no way that these Jews could actually speak their language. This is coming from the spirits of the living God. But what we see afterwards, and we haven't gotten there yet, but once we get to verse 14 of Acts chapter 2 and following, we see that Peter then goes on to ground that experience in Scripture. So it's not sort of like this experience that's left to hang in the air like a balloon sort of being tossed into and fro by the wind. But what Peter does, he takes that experience, ties it and grounds it to the floor and gives an explanation for what is happening. Not to be left to be interpreted subjectively, but he interprets it objectively according to the Word of God. Again in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? The scriptures ground this experience, not only that, but the scriptures also prophesied that this would happen, which also provides a further grounding for this experience, this supernatural event that is happening. John the Baptist, in his ministry, had said that there was one coming after me, namely Jesus Christ, who will baptize believers in spirit and in fire, which we see happening here in chapter 2. Jesus himself says in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Peter will go on to say that the prophet Joel prophesied that this was going to happen, that this is a, the work of the Spirit of God. And so this Pentecostal church, or the supernatural church, is one that is characterized by this filling up by the Spirit. Now what does this Spirit-filling mean? It means at least four things. First, it means belonging. That is what it is to be Spirit-filled. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So part of what it means to be filled by the Spirit when one believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that now you belong to the Lord. 
You are his. You are not your own, as the scripture says, but you have been bought by, with a price. That is the price of the precious life of Jesus Christ. You belong to the Lord. Spirit filling also means adoption. Romans 8.15, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So not only do you belong to the Lord, but now you have been adopted as the son or daughter of the living God. You've been saved into a relationship where you now identify the God in heaven as your father. And he identifies you as his son or daughter. Spirit filling also means that you are sealed. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you belong, you've been adopted, and you've been sealed, and the Spirit functions as a seal, this permanent mark that gives you this assurance that there is this inheritance that is waiting for you in heaven. Spirit filling also means that you've been given sort of a, a new operating system. Now, if you're following along in the bulletin, uh, the past, there's a reference there for Romans chapter 8. I actually changed that last minute, and so the passage I'm referencing is Romans 7, 21 to 23, which again gets to the idea that I want to put before you much more succinct. Romans 7, 21 says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So what is this saying here? So spirit filling means having a new operating system. So a couple of different illustrations, because one might be more clarifying than the other. So think of it this way. This way I found it helpful. Think of two different operating systems in a computer, like a Windows operating system, and one is a Mac operating system. Two very different operating systems. Two very different interfaces. And so when a person, any, every person, is born with the operation or the operating system of the flesh, that is, they do not desire to please God, their lives do not honor God, they do not desire to give thanks to God, that even if they should desire to serve the Lord, they cannot do so apart from the Spirit of God. That is the old operating system of the flesh, but when one believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and indwelled by the Spirit of God, they are then filled with a new operating system that is slowly and gradually overriding and taking over the old system of the flesh. And so sometimes, until we are glorified, when we behold the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven and perfected, until then... There is still the old operating system that sometimes tempts us and lures us away to do what we do not want to do. Another way to, to think of it is when I lived in Vermont, I was on my way to church, got into a head-on collision with a, with a pickup truck, and thankfully walked out of that almost unscathed. But after that, I was anxious driving, in fact, I would not go that same direction anymore for a long time and instead finding, went a different route to get to the church. And so the new way that I started taking, you could say, is the new way of the Spirit. This is where I'm going. This is the, my, my, my predominant way of life. 
But what happens is that sometimes I took the old way without even realizing it until, well, until I was well my way into the old way. Or sometimes I take it on purpose knowing that I would be anxious taking that old way. But that is not the way that characterizes my walk anymore. It is the new way of the Spirit. This is the way that the Lord takes His people. It's a different direction, different than the old way. But sometimes the old way rears its ugly head and tempts you to do what you don't want to do. And part of what it means to be Spirit-filled is that there is a new system that is moving you and compelling you and persuading you and guiding you into the ways that please the Lord. And there's a fifth. What it means to be spirit-filled is that you are transformed. And the way that the scriptures say this is born again. Many of you are familiar with the conversation between Jesus and the religious teacher Nicodemus where he tells that you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus doesn't understand how is it possible for a person to be born again into this mother's womb? And Jesus is saying, how are you a teacher of Israel and not understand these things? And it, essentially Jesus is saying that this is a supernatural event. That no person can make this happen. The gospel says that no person could better themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel requires nothing less than a complete transformation that no self-help book, no self-help motivational speech, no self-help guru, or no self-help guide could ever help somebody to accomplish. It is something that happens supernaturally through the Spirit of the living God when one places their faith and trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what it is to be Spirit-filled, belonging, sealed, Adopted, new system, and completely transformed. And this is what makes a Pentecostal church or a supernatural church. What else makes a supernatural church? Second, they're clothed by the Spirit. Clothed by the Spirit. Luke 24, 49, And behold, Jesus says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus says again in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The scriptures make this close association between the Spirit and power. When Jesus returned from being tempted in the wilderness, it said that he returned with power, and what did he do? He immediately went into the synagogue and began to teach. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he, be, that he preached the gospel to the Corinthians, he preached in power so that their wisdom, or sorry, their salvation, might rest in the power of God. And I don't think he's talking about the visible manifestations of the Spirit of God, such as speaking in tongues. He's talking about the, the verbal declaration or heralding of the gospel of Jesus Christ that results in the transformation of sinners. As you read through the book of Acts, you do see these visible manifestations of the Spirit of God and the life of the believers. But what's happening, it's much more significant than that. 
Most importantly, the Spirit clothes believers with the power that is needed for faithful witnessing and evangelism and gospel proclamation. That is essentially where a lot of the power lies. So that any success that any individual or any church experiences in sharing the gospel with others that results in somebody believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not owing to us, but it's owing to the Spirit of God. Because it is the Spirit that flavors our words so they can be digestible to those who hear. It is the Spirit of God that perfumes our words so that those who hear are enticed and compelled and persuaded to believe. It is the Spirit of God that sharpens our words, so that they can pierce the conscience of those who hear and cut to the heart in the same way that it did when Peter preached the gospel and it said that many of those who heard were cut to the heart. It's the supernatural spirit that does that work. And so in this way, the spirit clothes believers to empower them in the preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit also clothes believers with the power for ministry. Everyone in the church wears the same uniform 24-7, and that is the uniform of the Spirit. And as we see one another in need, we wear the uniform proudly, and on top of that, we also put on the apron because we're then ready to serve. The Spirit clothes believers that they are also able to live a transformed life. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. So Paul is telling us that there are people who are characterized by many of these vices, or even just one of these vices, in that they give this appearance of godliness. But if you look a little bit closely at their lives, you see that there isn't a godliness, but rather a godlessness. And in this way, they deny the power of godliness. And the power of godliness is in the transformation of one's life. And what makes a godly person godly is not their works or their speech or their virtues. What makes a person godly is the Spirit of God. Anyone can be a good person, right, depending on how you define good. But only the Spirit of God can make a person holy. And holiness is what the kingdom of heaven requires, and nothing less than that. And this is what the Spirit of God does upon the believer. They, he clothes them with the righteousness of Christ so that Jesus himself considers his people as saints, sanctified and holy. So this is what marks a supernatural church. What else marks a supernatural church? Thirdly, 
a new heart. In Jewish tradition, and I don't want to stress this too far or make too much of it, but in Jewish tradition, some believe that when Moses came down from the mountain at Sinai to bring the commandments of God handed to him by God, written by the finger of God, to give to the people of God, that it was on the 50th day, that is 50 days after the celebration of the Passover. If you remember that Pentecost happens on the 50th day after the celebration of the Passover. The scriptures, interestingly, do describe the transformation of the believer as one having a new heart with the law of God written upon the person, upon the canvas of the person's heart. So Jesus, you know, ascends into heaven, sends his spirit, and it is through the spirit that the person receives a new heart with the law of God written upon the heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, looking forward to the work of the Spirit, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Through the Spirit, God performs an intense, careful, and precise surgical procedure where he removes the heart of stone, and in its place he situates a new heart. And upon the new heart is written the law of God by the very finger of God. And what, is then, what does that mean then for us to have this new heart? It means then that we do not live for God out of sheer duty or even out of fear, but we live for God because we desire to out of a love for the Lord, what it also means to have a new heart surgically placed in your chest by God himself is that you then love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates. And sometimes, right, our hearts need some calibration at times. Sometimes if we're not careful, we don't examine ourselves. Sometimes if we spend too much time away from the Lord and God's people, what happens is that an icy surface begins to take place over the surface of our hearts. That's why we need to constantly adjust the temperature of our hearts to make sure that it is warmed so that we continue to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. But what it also means to have a new heart is that you love the household of God. Right? This is one of the defining marks of a Christian, that they love God's people. And most importantly of all, having a new heart means that you love Christ, that you love the Lord above all things. So this is what marks a supernatural church, they have a new heart. Fourthly, they're marked by a supernatural unity. In John 17, verse 20, Jesus prays for his people. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
And we see the answer to that prayer in the book of Acts with the indwelling of the Spirit of God that provides the supernatural unity in the life of the church. The early Christians, they came together and they prayed together and they remained together. And as they pray together, the Spirit descends and fills each and every one of them. And from here on out, from the book of Acts, from the very beginning until the rest of the book, what we see is that the church is characterized by this togetherness. And we see this immediately after the preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost by Peter. And what does it produce? It produces a people of God who are coming together. They come together, and what do they devote themselves to? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayer. And throughout the book of Acts, you also see that they are identified by uh, they are having all things in common. It doesn't mean that, they, that those who are included into the household of God, those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, then immediately are made to be exactly like each other. But it means that they are joined together. Even though they're all different, they're joined together and they become as one. And it is because they have this union through the Spirit of God and through that union in the Spirit of God that also unites them to Jesus Christ in this permanent and unbreakable union. So through the Spirit we see, and we have experienced it ourselves, that within the church there is this sincere unity of affections and yet a diversity of expression. We're joined by a common affection, and that is a love for the Lord, a love for the gospel, a love for God's people. And we're all glued together supernaturally by the Spirit of God. And so the household of God, the people of God, when they come together, becomes the place where we express our affections for Christ. This is essentially what we do when we come together. We express our affections to the Lord. We express our love for the Lord as we worship, as we sit under the Word, as we pray, as we serve one another. And it looks differently because we're all different because people are gifted differently according to the Spirit, because some have different talents and gifts and abilities than others, because some people are able to serve in different ways that others cannot, because some might find it more encouraging to speak words of encouragement than others, and some might find it much more helpful to write letters of encouragement and to speak them. Some can play an instrument, some can sing, some can do different things that others cannot do. And what makes for such a diversity of expression is the one unity that we have supernaturally by the Spirit of God. So that in God's church, there is a diversity of people, but one Spirit. A diversity of backgrounds, but one Spirit. A diversity of gifts and talents, but one Spirit. A diversity of serving, but one Spirit. A diversity of showing love to others, but one Spirit. And what I think that that... that that means for us, then, is that the church of the living God, I'm not talking about the building, but when people of God come together, that's the church. And when the people of God come together, that this becomes the place as a kind of preparation and testing ground for heaven. You see, because how well you serve the church today determines greatly how well you're going to serve in heaven. Don't expect that you're going to serve much better when you get into heaven. No, Today 
is a day of preparation. Today is the testing ground. It's how well you serve today. It's going to show how well you're going to serve and love others in heaven. But I do think there is an exception here. And those who belong to this, this exception are only a few. I think there is a gracious exception for those who are in a season of life where they are not able to serve as much as they would like. And I know that there are some of you here that desire to serve in ways that you wish you could, in ways that you have in the past when you were, had more strength, when you had more energy, when you weren't perhaps suffering as much, when perhaps things were a little bit better before, perhaps when you were younger. And I think the Lord makes a gracious exception for you. Because the Lord does not place an expectation upon you that he knows that you cannot meet. You should not expect that the Lord will judge or even reward you based on the remaining chapters of your life, however chapters there are left. But the Lord rewards according to the totality of one's life. So that if you have served the Lord in so many different ways and served God's people in so many different ways over years and perhaps even over decades, you should still be confident in knowing that whenever it is the day that you see the Lord Jesus face to face, that he will still say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And perhaps now is a season to let others serve you. For those of us who have the ability and the energy and the strength to do so, we should be able to say, it is our joy to serve you. The supernatural church is marked by this filling of the Spirit, clothed by the Spirit. It's marked by the supernatural unity that we have through the spirits of the living God. It's marked by having a new heart. But one last thing to consider. Fifthly, the supernatural church today. Now, regardless on where you fall on the theology of visible gifts and whether they should be in the life of the church or not, that's a different topic, a much bigger topic for another time. But what makes this church supernatural today is not the expression of these visible sign gifts, it is the abiding supernatural spirit in the life of God's people. It's not our works, it's not our gifts, it's not our talents that makes the church supernatural. It is the spirit of God through which we exercise our gifts and our serving and our talents. And today, as a supernatural church, let us give ourselves to doing certain things. Number one, let us be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, interesting passage, says, that, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's a lot to figure out there. What's the connection between getting drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, which we don't really have the time for. But we all know that it takes more than just a little bit of alcohol to intoxicate a person. 
It takes much more than that. And I think the idea here, the idea that Paul is trying to get at in speaking to the church is that let us not be content with just a little bit of the Spirit, but let us pursue a fuller measure of the Spirit. And interestingly, this is a command. It's a command to the church, be filled with the Spirit. And actually, in the way that it's written in the original language, it's intended to be a sort of a perpetual command. That is, be continually filled by the Spirit. It is something that we ought to be pursuing regularly in the Christian life. Then the question then becomes, how then do we become Spirit-filled? And there are many ways, and some of those ways you are already doing. It's reading the Word. It's praying, it is meditating on the scriptures, it is studying the word, it is getting together with God's people. Well, let me give you another way. In Psalm 4, verse 7, the psalmist writes, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So here the psalmist is resting in God, and he is satisfied in God. He is resting in truth, and he is satisfied in truth. And where does he get this from? He gets this from what's been written about God in his word. He gets, this, he gets it from what he knows about God. He gets this from how God has revealed himself. So he rests in truth. So then what must we do? And if we wish to be more spirit-filled, then you should have your fill of the great banquet that God lavishly provides for his saints. And what is that banquet? That banquet is the promises of God's word. That is essentially why the psalmist can rest and be satisfied in the Lord, because he's resting in the promises of God. Right? Nobody needs to tell you or me to think hard and reflect on the things, whatever it causes you, anxiety or stress or worry. You just do that naturally. Right? And we all know from experience that it, doesn't do, it really doesn't do us much good, does it? It only gives us empty calories that don't really fill or terrible calories that are harmful for us. But to be filled with the Spirit is to feast on the banquet of God's promises. When in doubt, when in fear, when in worry, when in distress, when tempted by sin. Feast on the banquet of the promises of God so that you may fill yourself with good, nutritious calories that will keep you filled and resting and satisfied in who God is. Secondly, something else we should do as a supernatural church filled by the Spirit of God is that we should wear our righteousness proudly. We have been clothed by the Spirit of God. You've been donned with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is much more dazzling and beautiful than the multicolored robe that Joseph himself had. This is more majestic than the kind of robes that King Solomon must have been dressed with. And this certainly provides a better covering than Adam and Eve could have made on their own when they sinned in the garden This is a clothing that is provided for you by the Spirit himself. And so we ought to wear it proudly, and we ought to wear it always. Don't ever take it off when no one is looking. Never take it off 
when you're not surrounded by other Christians because this robe has been purchased for you at such a high price. Yet I know that the old operating system is going to tempt you and does tempt you to take it off. Just take it off just for a moment. Put on the old dirty rags that you had before. And certainly life seems easier when when we're not always dressed in uniform. And we all know from experience that there's a certain pleasure that we get when we go through a hard day's work. We reach to the end of the day and we put on those comfy pajamas. It feels nice, it's comfortable, and you can do just about anything in pajamas because they're stretchy, because they're a little baggy, and they're warm, they're comfy. The thing is, is that we're not called to be comfortable. We're called to be dressed in the uniform of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But even, it's not that we cannot ever relax, but even when we do relax a little bit too much, more than we should, and we fail to walk in the manner that the uniform requires of us, praise be to God that we still remain sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, giving us that assurance that even when we sin, even when we do not walk in the manner that our uniform requires of us, the Lord, as our Father in heaven, knows how to deal gently and graciously with his beloved children. Third and lastly, trust the heart of Christ. As I said, certainly it's not always comfortable to wear a uniform, especially when you might be surrounded by many others who might be dressed more comfortably. And certainly there are times where it feels a bit burning to wear the uniform. But one thing we should do is to remember that we have been given a new heart. And this is a heart with new affections for love for Jesus Christ, a love for God's people. It's a heart that's been fashioned by the loving hands of our Father. Let me give you another reason why that surgical procedure is so necessary in the life of the person who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason why this procedure is so necessary is because God wanted us to have a heart that is assured of God's love. The human heart, I mean, if you've seen, I'm sure everybody has seen a human heart, what it actually looks like. I mean, you, it's, you can't even describe what it's shaped like, but you know it when you see it. But it doesn't look very good. It looks gross. Much better is probably the, the little Cupid heart that we're familiar with seeing, especially now with Valentine's Day around the corner. Reminder to you if you've forgotten about that. Right, that's certainly cuter than the heart that you and I have right now in our chests, pumping blood through our bodies. But imagine with me, if you will, imagine this, that the heart that God places surgically, supernaturally through His Spirit in you is a heart that is shaped like a cross. And this cross-shaped heart is pumping the blood of Jesus Christ throughout your life. And it is that heart that's been graciously given to you, given for you, so that you may be assured of God's love for you. In addition to that, God breathed his spirit into your life. as the one who fills you, clothes you, gives you a new heart. 
transforms you so that even in those times when it feels uncomfortable wearing the uniform of this righteousness of Christ, even when you feel like taking it off, be reminded of the heart of Christ. Be reminded of the heart that's been placed in you that is assured of God's love. And let that be an encouragement to you. Let it be a motivation to you to continue to keep the uniform on, wearing it proudly because it's been graciously 